tonight on episode four, we talk about the drummer from Nirvana's side project. I've I've heard good things. Dissecting <laughs> the Foo Fighters is next on Verse Chorus Verse. Welcome to Verse Chorus Verse, episode four. I am David Liston, and with me is the ceaselessly shredding Sven Knudsen. Sven, how are you? Good. <laughs> You're good. I'm doing great. You've cracked a Coors Light. Yeah. You've got a Nirvana shirt on. You are ready to go. Oh, man. I am topical yeah. <laughs> today. I'm excited for this. I will say for me, and I think for you from the emails we've gone back and forth on, this was by far the hardest episode so far to not talk about beforehand. Oh, for sure, definitely. And I've been I've been looking forward to this since the day you said, "Hey, we should do Foo Fighters <laughs> and dissect this band." Yeah. Um, this week in music yeah. has been awesome for me. I've gotten to listen to just a shit ton of Foo Fighters. They've got the new album coming. I discovered Shanty Talk. Have you discovered Shanty Talk? Shanty Talk. Tell me about Shanty Talk. <laughs> so TikTok, which for, for any of you that don't know me, I am not a social media person. I am kind of starting to get the hang of Instagram. I wasn't on Facebook until a year ago. I am terrible at Twitter. And that said, I discovered that there is something going on right now where this guy out of Scotland put on TikTok him doing this kind of drum beat and singing this old Whaler song called The Wellerman. And some guy saw that out of Boston or something like that and just was like, hey, this really needs a bass. So I'm going to sing bass to this. And then some other guy saw that <laughs> and added a tenor part. And it became this massive thing on TikTok of old Buccaneer songs being sung. And I'm totally obsessed with it. It's, it's the coolest thing I've seen in a really long time. Wow. TikTok being used for something more than boobies. For good, right? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Wow. That's awesome. I'm such a sucker for... I love the old English madrigals. I love all the yeah. green sleeve stuff. I love shanties and, and old whaler songs. It's it's rad. It's really cool to see that stuff happening. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now now this is going on my list of things that I got to go and look up. <laughs> probably probably at five in the morning when we're done with this. If you just Google the Wellerman. Anyway. That, so yeah, it's been a good week. I've been listening to Shanny's. I've been listening to Dave. I've been listening to Grohl. Not not the other Dave. It's a few. It's been really good, right? It has been a great yeah. week. Yeah. I actually got to spend a little bit of time in a record store this week, which is always a pleasure. Did you go to the exchange? I did go to the record exchange. And I don't know. I think I've already said it on a couple episodes, how amazing that place is and the people there. I'm perfectly fine with us talking about the record exchange every single episode. So no worries there. Yeah. Good job, Sven. Take a drink of Coors Light. First thing I want to do is I want to talk about why I decided that the Foo Fighters would be the first band that we try to dissect on this podcast. We're going to do this once every couple months. We're going to pick a band. We're going to go through their whole catalog. We're going to decide how much we like them, if they're a favorite of one of ours, what we do and don't like about the band, all of that stuff. I picked the Foo Fighters for the first one because they seemed, they were the first band that popped in my head that just, it seemed like a softball band to talk about. Ah. They've been around forever. They've come out with loads of music. They are 
universally liked, but, and I'll, I'll ask you this right now. Yeah. Do you know anybody that loves the Foo Fighters, that the Foo Fighters are their favorite band? I don't know that I know anyone that's vocal about it. I, I know some yeah. people that probably, they, they like the Foo Fighters, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't know any people that just that, that are just that diehard all the time, you know? I think Foo Fighters are like a gateway drug into a whole lot of other music. I do know some yep. people at the get-go in 1994 all the way through maybe 1997. I know exactly um, what you're going to say right now. Yeah, we'll get there. I'm going to tell you to hold on to that. <laughs> we'll yes. get there. But it's they're not really anybody's favorite. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that they don't like the Foo Fighters. Right. Uh, to me, that's, it seemed like, okay, well, that's this is an easy one. But then it came to the part where you actually listened to their stuff. To me, this was not an easy breakdown. I thought this was going to be kind of an easy, feel good, you know, listen to a bunch of songs that I like. Because Foo Fighters have, what, 25 songs that I love and most people love. There is a lot to wade through with the Foo Fighters. There is, and it's it's a complex band. Just the members. For a while, they had a rotating lineup, right? Yes. And also the fact that I think a lot of the the band drama bled into uh, some of the albums. For sure. There's a lot there. I don't know. I So I think we're on the same page there. I also think just in general, with any band that has this much music, it is hard to dissect an entire discography at once. Right. You really have to pause on each album and you have to think back to a mind frame of, of where we were at in culture and where we, were, where we were at as people at that time, where you as a person was at, how old you were. You really have to pause and I got to think and I got to go to one by one and I got to... Does, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. And I'll, I'll admit that I think the first three albums for me were the easiest because I was the most familiar with, right? That's the, their oldest stuff. I've been listening to it since gotcha. it, it came out. Super familiar, yeah. especially with the first two. I think I know those albums mm-hmm. backwards and forwards. So I think when I started re-listening to everything, my initial... I don't know, I felt like, well, I can just skim through those first three. And I'll really dig in, you know, number four, number five, maybe maybe one by one. Yeah. Going back, though, I started listening with new ears. Mm-hmm. It was more analytical, and, which I don't feel I've ever done with the Foo Fighters. And I don't really turn them on all that much. They The Foo Fighters are more of a when you're at a party band or a when you're in a bar, they're going to come on. And they're everywhere in... In that capacity, like yes, you're not you're not gonna go through a night at Buffalo Wild Wings without hearing a Foo Fighters song for sure. Yeah, it's probably gonna be Learn to Fly. We're gonna get into the band stuff and the factual crap and all that, but first we gotta go over the most important part of the night. We gotta go over what are we drinking, and typically we don't really discuss this beforehand. We just do our own thing, but. Seeing as how, for any of you that are not familiar with Dave Grohl's pre-funking of a show, it's fucking intense. Quick Google search finds that he does, he has a method of how quickly he drinks Coors Light and Jägermeister before a show. But essentially it boils down to he drinks about six or seven Coors Lights and a bottle of Jaeger before he goes on for every fucking performance. So I don't know how he's alive. I don't know how he looks as good as right? he does and how put together he's, he's he is, well. but but he is. He admits uh, in several interviews, he's the guy, even at 
a picnic that's shoveling whiskey yes. down people's throats, you know? He's a rock star. He was born <laughs> to be a rock star. He wants to be a rock star. He lives how a rock star lives, and I, I love him for it. So that's what we're drinking. We're drinking Coors Light and Jaeger. Cheers. Cheers. This is to Dave Grohl and his uh, Jaeger Coorsness. Oh. And Ooh. honestly... <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that reaction. It has been a long time since I had Jaeger. Oh my god. I'm having flashbacks of oh. cheap bars and house parties and Sounds like you're doing it right though. It sounds like you got an ice bucket cuz the only way yes. that goes down is ice cold. No. If that's warm. Ooh. Yeah, no no I had to bring ice up here this time. You can't drink Coors Light or Jaeger anything but just above freezing point. We're not going to go really really deep into it. It's the Foo Fighters. Anybody that wants to know the story of the Foo Fighters already knows the story of the Foo Fighters. So we'll do the the brief stuff, kind of the first album. We're not going to get into the first album yet, but we'll talk about basically okay. that album number one, it's not even a Foo Fighters album. It's a Dave Grohl demo. Right. I think that... That speaks volumes yes. to the rest of the band. He'd already recorded that before he got all the other guys together. They weren't like, yeah, let's go back in the studio. Let's record this with all of us. They instead supported Dave and said, you know what? Let's use your your recording, the one that you did, Which, where you played all the instruments. When the drummer from Nirvana comes to you and says, hey, do you want to be in my band? But I already have all the songs recorded. What do you say? Absolutely. That's what I would say. Obviously, this all started right after Cobain died. We can talk about this now and kind of get the Nirvana stuff out of the way, but... It must have been so hard okay. making that first album. There's one thing I do remember from something I watched long ago where the band was sitting down for interviews during the tour of this first album. And every single question was about Kurt Cobain or Nirvana. Oh, every single question. Is, is this song about Kurt? Yeah. Is, is this one about yes. Kurt? Different band, guys. Different band. Yeah. Um, and feel so bad for Dave. It, yeah. And I think there was people that resented Dave. Let's see. Kurt died April. He's in recording October of that year, mm -hmm. 1994. To me, that sounds like therapy. If I was in that position, that's exactly what I would do to help process and grieve and find a way to move on. Once again, like I said in episode one, this podcast isn't a documentary. We do research, but we don't... Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to find us messing up on certain facts, especially when you go into dissections like this. But from what I understand, yeah, he was a fucking mess, because who wouldn't be? And he went and played Saturday Night Live with Tom, Tom Petty. Petty. Who offered him a gig. Yeah. I think Dave was very much basically saying, there's no way that I can drum. I'm so not ready to move on from Nirvana. And you know, we both know, if you're a drummer and you go to a different band and you're singing in a band, it is two completely different worlds. Right, right, right. I think him needing to start something new, but dude, it was Tom Petty. Okay, I, I just want to revisit that for a second because like, it's Tom fucking Petty. Saying no to that guy? You really, <laughs> you really have to have... I mean, there's got to be something, because that's yes. got to be a hard... He goes into the studio, right? I, I don't think any of the songs really are about it. I don't think he like went in and wrote a bunch of songs about... This was all songs that he had compiled over the last like five or six years that he had written basically while he, yeah. while drumming for Nirvana. So yeah, I don't think any of it, any of it is. There's a song that he actually sang on in Nirvana. Um, there's a song called Marigold, yeah. and he sang lead vocals. He wrote that. 
he didn't turn it into a Foo Fighters song. And to my knowledge, I don't think they've ever played it. I think that's the coolest thing ever, that letting Nirvana be a Nirvana thing and moving on, it's weird. You're not just having to deal with some guy's past band. You're dealing with some guy's past band that was basically the most important band of all time with the exception of maybe the Beatles, maybe. I think the weird thing too for an audience and and probably why they kept yelling out things like Marigold or asking about Kurt or asking about, the lineup had Pat Smear in it. You have- From the germs. Yeah, germs and also Nirvana. Half the band was Nirvana. You've got the two guys from Nirvana, then you got two guys from Sunny Day Real Estate, which was a band that- Ended yeah. prematurely, I'm sure. And yeah. I could see how if you if you went to a show, you're like, yeah, dude, it's like Nirvana, but with two other people. And that's not fair. I'll say this now. You were talking about how there were people that resented Dave Grohl for becoming the Foo Fighters. Oh, man. And I, while I wasn't one of them, I didn't resent Dave Grohl at all. I wanted nothing to do with the Foo Fighters yeah. when they came out. I was really, we were really, really young. Oh, when, yeah. I was in junior high. Cobain died, but he was a god to uh-huh. me. I'm a very, uh, I don't know, kind of bitter person in general. So when Dave Grohl, I'm also just a, I'm just a difficult person. We'll just say that. <laughs> so yeah, when the drummer for Nirvana starts his own band and starts coming out with music, I don't want to hear that shit. I was like that for a long, probably deep into after they came out with Color and the Shape. I didn't, I didn't give a shit about the Foo Fighters and I didn't want to listen to them. I think the thing that made it harder too is, is you can hear Kurt Cobain's influence, especially in that first First and second album, all the way through Color and Shape. You can hear... Foo Fighters has such an intense that is. guitar sound. I'm not saying that the guitar's the best part, but it's such a guitar-driven band. And that's what Nirvana was. Nirvana was just this deep, guttural, right. punch-you-in-the-face guitar. Totally different band, totally different feel, totally different sound, but the vibe, you can hear the vibe Totally, there. That's very true. I can't wait. I'm about to say this. I used to not like Pat Smear at all, even in Nirvana. But that giant fucking guitar sound, he was a huge part of that. Yeah. He just adds, Mm -hmm. he loses the notes sometimes because he's got so much just noise. You know, it's just like this huge, you just isolated their track. You'd think like, no way that that, no way that's going to sound good. Yeah. To your point, that uh, giant guitars, that's a signature Foo Fighter thing. It's a guitar driven band with... An unbelievable drummer. Question for you, Sven. Oh, great. Where do you stand on Grammys? Oh, it's a it's a good metric. They have ten of them. They have ten Grammys. Yeah. That's that's why I wanted to put yeah. that out there. So I mean, it's anyway. Keep. Going. I think it's a good metric. If you're looking at one way to measure success, that's a good indicator. For me, Grammys are the industry's acknowledgement that this band is something special. I think, so I hate Grammys, which I'm sure that doesn't surprise you. (laughs) This is what I feel like. I feel like if they decide to keep the Grammys going, I feel like it should be strictly on sales. Hmm. If you win a Grammy for Best Artist of the Year, you win it because you made the most money that year. If that's the case, though, is, is the band winning the award or is it the label and the marketing team? 
because they pushed more album sales. All you're doing with what you're doing now at the Grammys is leaving the door open for idiots like me or Kanye West come out and say, the Grammys are such bullshit. Mm -hmm. The whole reason I brought all this up is because I don't know if when I do these dissections, we should talk about how many Grammys they won, or maybe it's just a passing sentence. 10 Grammys so far. They've been nominated for a shit ton of them, but I'm a pretty big anti and you're probably, you're able to see both sides of things much better (laughs) than me. (laughs) They've had nine number one hits. I'll I'll read out the nine. The Best of You, The Pretender, Walk, Learn to Fly, All My Life, DOA, Something from Nothing, Rope, and Let It Die. They've had a couple live albums. They did this really cool thing uh, in 2015 where they did a live show in Area 51. And then they have a Skin and Bones album from 2006. Uh, which there's uh, acoustic stuff on, which is cool. When you first started listening, what were your initial feelings on on them? Almost all their albums, there's definitely parts that I feel were what I call filler. Yes, exactly. Filler, that's a perfect word. I, you have something that sounds kind of cool, and then you have to force it into a song, you know? Like, you feel like into it's the, it's cool enough, yes. and so-and-so came up with this part, so-and-so came up with this part. Yeah. We gotta turn this into something. This should be a song. This should be a song. Right? Yeah. Um, let, yes. let, let me real quick go and, like, hammer out well some said. lyrics. I And that's where I think it's, like, the... The lyrics, I think, sometimes get rushed because it's like, uh, well, we gotta we gotta cut this track so we can move on to the next one. Let me find something that rhymes here, and yep. I'm just get yep, okay, good enough. There, there we go. I'm gonna sing that, and song's done. Let's move to the next one. Um, yeah, let's go through personal influences. As far as you, how big of a Foo Fighters fan do you consider yourself? What's your story with this band? Is it Are they important to you? Is it just kind of a band that's been around? I wasn't a fan at the get-go. I think the first album, it was there. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. It just kind of was. I think Monkey Wrench was one of those songs that when I was a, a, a kid playing guitar, that was one I loved to yeah. play. I don't know. I used to try to see if I could scream the entire ending like he yeah. does all in one breath. <laughs> Everybody and did. I, yeah. I fucking couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it took me until maybe maybe one by one. I actually started liking Color and the Shape after one by one came out. And then slowly it just grew on me, I think. The way that they present their music, it's, it's one of my favorite favorite sounds i love it more than anything specific in any song it's such straight up rock yes they're not trying to reinvent the wheel they want to be a fucking rock band i love that about them yeah it's good good energy i'm kind of the same way i was not a big fan i became a fan around one by one well okay i loved the song monkey wrench when it came out nostalgia wise that song reminds me a lot of old high school buddies I mean, that it's such a well-written rock song. Whenever a band is around in your pivotal years, there's going to be specific songs that are just nostalgic for you. And, and Foo Fighters is definitely like that for me. When One by One came out, I was in the military at the time, and I was on an aircraft carrier, so I, and I was out to sea all the time. And when you're out to sea all the time, for a guy like me, music was my life. I remember getting care packages mm-hmm. with tons of cds in them and stuff this is one of the albums that i remember listening to all over the ship and since then i've always had a really soft spot in my heart for the foo fighters have you ever seen them live no uh regretfully i actually was supposed to it didn't work out but 
Regretfully, I've never seen them. Yeah, I've never seen them live either. I was going to say, going back to like the... the yeah, I, go ahead. For me, a huge part of it was actually when I started to get into drumming. Because when you and I played mm. in, in bands together, I played a lot of string instrument. When I yeah. started getting into drums more, Dave Grohl, just from the stuff he did in Nirvana, was was huge influence to me. And I always strived to, to drum like that. Then yeah. Taylor Hawken just took it to uh, for me took it to another level lyric talk we, we won't go over this too long uh what do you think of their lyrics are you a dave Grohl lyric fan he doesn't have a lot of standouts to me he is really good at picking lyrics for screams yes done yes done on to the next one he picks the perfect words to just belt i love that dave Grohl is one of the people he doesn't overdo it he like you said he chooses the perfect words perfect lyrics to scream and when he does it doesn't come across whiny or angsty and it's so he good. can blend it right back into singing something with a note with a pitch so next up we'll talk about musicianship are they good musicians we've kind of touched on this but we can do it a little bit more they are very good musicians let's get into the drumming we we kind of already touched on it sven talked about how great of a drummer he is and he he is right he's an amazing he's crazy i can't believe this foo fighters stole him from alanis morissette who in that day this was when (laughs) alanis Alanis morissette was like the she was huge she was massive huge in the 90s right she was the you name me one person our age that at that point didn't own jagged little right if you find footage of alanis morissette playing live and you you see taylor back there on the drum kit it looks so funny because you've got alanis doing her thing and then he's just back there wailing (laughs) you know yeah but he's just hammering he's just pounding the shit out of those drums one of my favorite clips somewhere where if you Google or look on YouTube for Foo Fighters lead symbolist, this to me is an incredible thing to watch because it is Taylor Hawken playing the entire drum kit minus the cymbals. And then Dave Grohl in a separate room <laughs> with headphones on playing only all the cymbals. So here's Dave and he's hitting hi-hats and crashes and everything just perfectly as a drummer to play in sync with another drummer that's taken half of your kit that's that's hard this we can get into this now too all of the band drama shit that they went through and they went through a lot between coloring the shape and their original their first album and their and one by one every single band ever goes through that but the foo fighters were from day one super famous because Dave Grohl was in it. Yeah. So all of that shit that bands usually go through for the first two years of their conception, everybody witnessed because they were already famous. Yeah. The You know, hey, you know, this guitarist, man, it's not really working out. Yeah. Or this drummer's too young. Or, uh, hey, man, look, I miss my old band. Yeah, everybody knew who they mm-hmm. were while they were going through all that. And that, that's unfortunate. So anyway, back to musicianship the the drummers are amazing the the guitarists are great the sound is really what carries the guitarists but dave Grohl, it's not just a hey i got lucky that i was in nirvana and i'm in foo Fighters. dave Grohl, to me not only is he a great drummer because he is he's a fantastic drummer but the big thing that gets me about the foo fighters you have and i have a lot anybody that plays guitar 
and sings in a band. It's fucking hard. Oh, yeah. He plays really intricate guitar parts for being a singer at the same time. Right. I have so much respect for the guitar parts he plays while he's singing. Absolutely. I feel like I'm just going to say the exact same thing that you are. I don't know that I could really add to it. What I liked about his way of playing guitar and singing, the way that he would choose what vocal notes he was going to sing, what melody he was going to sing around Mm -hmm. the chords that he would play. It was like you ran out of fingers and you're going to play this other note with your voice. Yep. That's a great way to put it. I call this the bad religion metaphor. And the reason I call it the bad religion metaphor is because if you listen to Bad Religion's first album, they were at best mediocre musicians. Yeah. Don't don't send me any fucking hate mail. I love (laughs) Bad Religion. They're one of my top 10 bands of all time. But when they first started, they were pretty shitty musicians. They are still playing. This is 35 years later. You listen to an album of theirs now, their drummer is insane, the guitar work is impeccable, the singing is great, because they've been playing music for 35 years every day of their life. And to me, the Foo Fighters have a little bit of that, of you've been together for this long playing this type of music, of course you are going to be good musicians. You're going to be great musicians. We'll talk about side projects. We've already talked about like the Germs and Sunny Day Real Estate and all that. You look at Dave Grohl's side project. Oh, Queens? Queens of the Stone yeah. Age. Have you listened to the Them Crooked Vultures album, Sven? Yes. Yes. It's unbelievable. Yeah. He, everything he touches is gold. It is. A lot of that's his energy, I think, too. People that play with him play better. Yes. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Tenacious D. He was also the drummer for Tenacious D in the album that they did. Which, ah. But you listen to the Tenacious D, that first album. Yeah. That's that's an unbelievable album. It's so good. I think I overlooked he, that he was, was that drummer. That. Yeah, I, I think I overlooked that. Yeah. <laughs> he was Satan, man. Ah. <laughs> and I love me some Tenacious D. That's basically the Foo Fighters. We're going to take a break, and then we're actually going to go through each of their albums in chronological order. We will be right back. We are back. Before we get into just a brief conversation about every single album... I want to guess which album is the favorite of each of ours. Ah, yes. I will start. We are not counting Medicine at Midnight into this review. It's been out for two days. We have not had enough time to listen to it. Sven, I am actually going to go with the very first one. I'm going to go with the... The Foo Fighters, Foo Fighters demo tape. Yes. You are such a big fan of a behind-the-scenes story of an album right. that I just right. figured this just has it just has so much shit going on behind it. That's that's my pick for you. This is a tough one. It's very tough. I want to say in your honor. I'm second guessing myself already <laughs> after I've just said it. Yeah, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. In your honor. It's the most balanced. It's a good guess. Chronological order. Let's start with the self-titled Foo Fighter quote-unquote album, we'll call it. I really just consider this a demo. We already talked about this. Sven uh, is in agreement. He made it in 94 with 
Barrett Jones, who was a guy that he had been friends with for a really long time. The one thing about this album that I think is awesome, for people out there, there is something that used to happen a lot more, but is extremely difficult called triple tracking. They did that with the vocals. Instead of just pro toolsing your vocals to make it beefier and better, they basically just backtrack and you sing the same part exactly the same way yeah that's so hard that's so hard i feel like this studio was like down the street or really close to dave's house yeah that's kind of cool it's like you can wake up in the morning and you're like yeah i had not listened to this probably like 10 15 years i had not listened to this in forever i swear when i first got on spotify and i turned this on and the first three tracks play this is a call and big me or I'll stick around Uh and then big me. I thought I had picked a greatest hits album. You know, bands Uh. do like a, this was our first 10 years, greatest hits sort of thing. Totally thought that that's Uh what it was. Uh It's really interesting to listen to and think of the fact that some of these songs are pre Nirvana. That's nuts. That's crazy to think of. Out of all the albums, this was the one that I most had to say, look at when this came out in 1995. Yeah. Cause I was at 25 years. Am I doing my math right? Mm-hmm. 95, 26 years? Well, it was only, we were like 13 years old, 12 years old. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I was probably way too young to love this kind of music as much as I did. Mm-hmm. I do remember I got to keep my Foo Fighters album, even though my mom took all of my Nirvana albums away. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. As, yeah, this is going to go down a rabbit hole. She found the In Utero album, and that just triggered uh, the the massive <laughs> <laughs> confiscation of oh, all no. Nirvana contraband. Yeah, my mom heard "Rape Me" and was like, "What? There's a song called what?" But so, and you're too young yeah, to that, describe that first to Foo her Fighters that, album. Hey, this is actually this is an anti-rape song, right. Mom. It's you '90s know. grunge, Mom. It's Seattle. They're sarcastic. <laughs> it's really mm-hmm. good, and it gets to Alone slash Easy Target, which is. That's such a well-written song. It kind of flies in the face of anything popular that day. It's not angsty and screamy and and mad and Nirvana-y, but it's also definitely not pop. He had his own thing. The track that did that for me, I think, like the opening, This Is A Call. Yeah. Something about This Is A Call and the fact that he put that at track one seems so appropriate for all the cows, which is still the song that I think of when I think of the Foo Fighters title album. He came across as really comfortable and in his element. He totally did. I'd never thought about this before, but I had a buddy. His name was his name is Brian Bates. And he told me once that when you're listening to the first album of a band, you're basically listening to the greatest hits of that person for like the last 10 years. Up to that point, right? Yeah. You're essentially listening to the 85 to 95 best of of Dave Grohl. Totally. The song Weenie Beanie. Yes. When that comes on, this this is what Foo Fighters is going to be. Yeah. It's, it's smack in the middle of the album, I think. I know a lot of people like to compare, right, Foo Fighters to Nirvana or like Foo Fighters carried that torch on. I think Foo Fighters has their own influence on rock music. Completely different entity, yeah. They left their own fingerprint. It's an impressive album because I feel like he recorded it fairly quickly as far as albums go. Like he he went to the studio and put things together pretty quick. 
I just love that you picked this one as my favorite. Like, I feel like I know a little bit more about your brain and how I'm your brain thinks about my brain your works. Brain and how my brain works on your brain. And <laughs> album number two for them, Color and the Shape, comes out in 1997. This is. It's their keystone album. That is the Foo Fighters album. You're meeting the Foo Fighters. Exactly. And now we can go through kind of the drama. And there was a lot of fucking drama. And a lot of the drama is because of Dave Grohl. And I think Dave Grohl was a young dude. Honestly, a lot of the shit that he pulled, like when we were in a band with Brent and you and I, it it reminds me of the type of shit I would have done where... You know, telling the drummer to stay home because they're going to go and re-record a bunch of shit and he's going to put the drum tracks down. I don't even think he told him. He didn't. I don't think William knew. The whole band. Exactly. Yeah, he he pulled some shit. So I get it from Dave Grohl's perspective. I get it. This is his fucking music. He wrote it. And I'm sure you get this too. When you write a song, you have a vision for it. You have a, a, a drum sequence in your head. You have everything. And when some guy's trying to play it and he's fucking it up, it's so hard for you to not just grab the sticks and say, I'm just going to... And to be Dave Grohl, who was just the drummer in the biggest rock band ever. He's not the drummer anymore. He's now writing the songs, playing guitar and singing. So, of course, he's written drum parts in his head because that's what he did for every band he's been in before this. He he probably had the drum part before he had the guitar part. It's a dick thing to do. It really is. When you start a band, you start a band. When you tell somebody, I want you in the band, they are in the band now. Or at the very least, don't backdoor them. Yes. If you want to be James Brown, be James Brown. Be yeah. Dave Grohl in the Foo Fighters. It's affected how I treat things in my own life because he... Mm-hmm. Not just with the drummer, every band member change because he was so young. Yeah. I think that if he could do it all Absolutely. over again, I don't know that he would have secretly gone down to LA and re-recorded all the drum tracks and then later told William, hey, you're not on this album. I'll just say that there are douchey moves that you make when you're young that you, you do. can definitely yeah. reflect on when you are older and think, God, I wish I would have done that different. Just like you said, he's not a bad guy. He's a great guy. Like, you you watch yeah. any interview with him or anything like that, he's full of shit. Could you imagine being the drummer for a band, guy that you're in a band with was just a part of the, the biggest band of all time, and he comes to you with a song like Everlong, and he says, look, this is what I want the drums to be. And that's a hard song to drum. I remember I had always wanted to cover a Foo Fighters song because when... Sven and I were in a band with a guy named Brent Berg, who's an amazing drummer. And I thought that our sound would equate really, really well to the Foo Fighters. I remember exactly where I was at Capitol High School. I remember the exact (laughs) part of the hallway I was walking down when I looked at Brent and I said, Hey, so what do you think about covering Everlong? I remember so well the face that he made to me. <laughs> it was this yeah. douchebag. I remember that to this day. It's deceivingly hard. It's deceivingly hard. Because I, I know that as I started to woodshed my drum chops, right? I was like, oh, yeah, there's a good one to learn on. Because it's just yeah. a bunch of hi-hat and then... It's just really like, fast hi-hat. You know, it, and that's it. The tempo yeah. kills you. I think I asked you about Hero, too. I love that song, but it kind of, it lost a lot of speed. It's been overplayed. 
Whenever mm-hmm. I hear that song, I think of sports movie played it for, you know, like Varsity Blues or whatever. And then it's just yeah. kind of one of those songs that was in like 17 movies and four commercials. And yeah. for me, yeah. Color in the Shape, the respect to Everlong, it's how much I love the song Monkey Wrench and how I think that's one of the most mm-hmm. well-written rock songs of the last 25 years. It really reminds me of some old friends, including one that passed away recently. So that song means ah, yes. a lot to me. But other than that, I do not love this album the way that most people do. The other thing about that album is the songs that aren't throwaway songs are amazing songs. Yeah. Songs that deserve to stand the test of time and, and be listened to forever. What, so like, what What's your this, take on this album? Similar. I think we can agree on like the favorite songs. I'm going to add enough space to my list of favorites on this album. Yeah. He drums it in four. It's like six over four. And that's one of the coolest things. The other cool thing is the story about how they found the tempo for the song. They were touring in Europe, or as they toured in Europe, they noticed that the crowds there don't mosh. They, they jump. Don't ba- yeah, exactly. They bounce. They have this little, the whole crowd just jumps and yep. bounces. And so Dave supposedly started bouncing around. He just started jumping. It's like, okay, how fast is that? Uh, uh, uh. You know, he would just jump and like, okay. That's how he came up with the tempo of the song. That's fantastic. I will say that I consider this the first album. Let's go to Nothing Left to Lose, 1999. They lost Pat Smear from touring so damn much. He didn't want to do the big label thing. He wanted to record it in a garage, right? It wasn't a garage. He bought a house in Virginia and was like, we're going to record it in my basement. That's right. And he built a studio in his basement. And they just isolated and just hung out and chilled at Dave's house. And they did it as a three-piece. It was Nate, Dave, and, and Taylor. Dave Grohl has said that this he thinks this is his favorite album of the Foo Fighters. I think if I was him, I would say that too. They made it a big point to not... They didn't use auto-tune. They didn't use yeah. Pro Tools. They didn't use any straight up out and of the And they self-produced. This was the album. They got a chance to learn more about each other as musicians. My favorite song to drum to, Ooh. I do it almost weekly, Learn to Fly. Ah, it starts out solid. The first four songs, good after good after good. It's, it's kind of like their first album. There's really not that much to say about this album besides basically they went from color and the shape and they found a way to kind of ground themselves and write something. And it, this is the first time they collaborated yes. in songwriting. Good point. This is the one Nate and Taylor got to leave their mark. Then they go into one by one and all this is when they kind of half asked it to start. They basically broke up and then yeah. got back together, right? Because Dave Dave went off and the pieces of the story or something like he, he got pissed off because they were half assing it, like you were saying. And he's yeah. just like, Yeah, I'm gonna go do this for a while. He's and, like and goes and does Queens of the Stone Age. I'll just go be a drummer in another band. I can only imagine how terrifying that would be. <laughs> can you imagine being like Taylor, Dave left. You've only been in the band and he went and for he's like, playing for Queens, and oh my God, Queens is so good. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be gut wrenching, man. I like. I it, like though. the way they rally. This album's darker. I feel yeah. like that's kind of that has to do with it. Two of my five favorite Foo Fighter songs are on this album. This album is huge nostalgia wise for me, and we already talked about that. But this is when, at this point, Dave Grohl decides that. 
our number one tracks need to be kicking everybody in the fucking face. Right. From this point on, the Foo Fighters track one. All my life. Every single one. I don't remember if it's Pat Smear or if it's the other guitarist that said, I don't care if I've played this song 400 times. Every time we play. It's a turning point for them, When right? this song comes on, I will love it. Yeah. I, and I feel the same yeah. way. Growing up as a musician, there are certain songs that you just spend hours thinking about how you wish you would have written and this is one of those songs yeah my god yeah this song is a good lesson in how much some of us overthink chord progression <laughs> dun, like, dun, 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 dun. that's it how that's long does need. he sit on what yeah <laughs> yeah it's all you that's that's it it blows my mind the way it builds um you know i'm a sucker for and and foo fighters are good at that they're good at the very the dynamics big small big small and then there's one other song that i think is incredible on this album and it's a song called lonely as you which yes it's not a massive song it's not hugely popular this song for me hits so many key points i've always strongly believed there are certain chord progressions and things like that that for your specific brain, just work. And this is one of them. Sven, we have done a song that's chord progression is similar to this. I, th- I feel like you wrote it. Lonely as You is this slow walk. It's like F sharp to A minor to E to D minor and then back. There's something about that sort of chord progression that just makes me love a song. And it's why... I've written songs like this a lot. I always like to say that I think, I honestly think I've written House of the Rising Sun 12 times. (laughs) There's also amazing harmonization in that song, which is a huge thing for me. I'm a huge fan of harmonization. I'll say this album has the song that I hate to love. Ooh. And that's times like these oh okay i hate that i like that song yeah i don't really like like it it because of the time signature it's weird it goes from eight four to seven four to it and it's like bars of three maybe it's just overplayed i think it got used for some things that i wasn't necessarily on board with so let's go to in your honor 2005 double album the rock and the acoustic and more and more i'm like regretting picking this for you it's not a bad pick, Sven. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you whether you're right or wrong, but in your honor... They had some people on this that impressed me. Some they had guests, fucking John Paul Jones but... on this. Yeah. One of our awards namesakes for crying out right. loud. Yeah. The lineup on this album's awesome. The thing that I think is mm-hmm. weird is that they split it the way they did. It could have been two albums. It's kind of weird that they wanted the whole like second side to just be... The starting track is amazing. I mean, everyone knows the biggest songs on this album, like Best of You and DOA. And yeah, I'm not a huge fan of either of those. I don't dislike them. I'm not a huge fan of them. In fact, the middle of the rock album, I have a really hard time keeping my attention on it. And I think if you're if you're marathoning it, like we did, you know, researching for this episode of our podcast, my ears got fatigued by the time I got here. Yes. But then when you get to the acoustic, it is so good. It's so good. Yeah. I think this influenced how they put together all their future albums. For sure. I think well, this, their next album this, is totally a blend of both of them. Right. I think this gave them the confidence that they wouldn't lose their rock fans if they threw the acoustic stuff in the middle of it. Well put. 
Yep. There's there's some stuff on here. The Nora Jones stuff. I like the. I always liked Nora Jones on other people's shit more than on her own record. Yeah, she did a song yeah. with Danger Mouse. That was one of the coolest songs I'd ever heard. I think we talked about this when we talked about live albums versus studio. I'm gonna use Best of You for an example. I don't like Best of You on this album, but when I hear a live recording, I love the song. I had a very big struggle with how far up does all the acoustic work on this take because seriously when this goes to the acoustic stuff I am just in love with the second half of this album which as you know is a big deal for me and that goes into the next album for them which is 2007's Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace where they pretty much said we're just gonna take the last album and we're gonna Blend it. Once again, we're going number one track, The Pretender. They are just so good with the number one tracks. Who was their producer on this one? Gil Norton. There are aspects of every song on this album that I like. I love the acoustic work. I really, apparently I really, really like when Foo Fighters do acoustic work. For me, this this one started out strong, like he pointed out. The Pretender, these monster track ones, and then... It kind of tapers off and starts to go... Did you not like this album, Sven? There's nothing I can say that's bad. It sounds like you didn't like this album. Sven didn't like this album, guys. I don't hate it. Verse scores, verse hot take. I don't hate it. Echo silence, patience, whatever, whatever. (laughs) Sven hates. (laughs) No, no, I, I don't hate it. I feel like I got set up and then the rest of it just didn't hit me as hard as the first one. I gotcha. No, that's fine. Yeah, that makes sense. They have the Ballad of the Beaconsfield Miners on this, which everybody go back to episode two right now where I go on my rant about how not every song needs to have lyrics and then come back and listen to this song. This song is amazing. And you know why it's amazing? Because they have beautiful musicians on here and no lyrics. So in your face, I win one to nothing. Coming from a guy who I consider a, a poet, <laughs> it sings, but a, a poet. For you to say that a song was good because it didn't have lyrics, I think is a very powerful statement. And then they go into Wasting Light 2011. Four years later, we'll just start with the best part of this album, which is the producer, Sven. I give you the honor of saying who produced this album <laughs> butch! butch vig the never mind as much as i love kurt and the rest of nirvana butch was responsible oh. for Nevermind's success god you just scared the shit out like, of me hands down i didn't know where you were going with that what, was he he was in garbage right yes and he was he did Siamese Dream for Smashing Pumpkins. He's, uh, he's done. He's produced a ton of stuff. And I think the coolest thing about this now now it's coming back to me. This one was done on tape, which is so incredibly hard. So Dave went to Butch. He said, "Hey Butch, I want you to make an album with us." Butch was like, "Oh, that's great." And then Dave said, "I want it to be analog. I I want it to be on tape." And Vig was like, "Uh, yeah, that's how I learned." Soul. Now I'm gonna have to yeah. relearn. And he seriously had to relearn how to... No Pro Tools, no Quantize, nothing. The band has to land their shit. When you are recording on tape, it it can't be understated that this doesn't happen anymore. 
People don't do this anymore. No, there's no. too much technology out that makes it so you don't have to do this anymore. And this band said, no, we want to have to be that good. How do you not love that? And this album is what, almost almost 10 years old. Yep. Despite the fact that they went back to like technology that was at the time already antiquated. Yeah. It holds up. Yeah. I still go back to it. The people they got, they brought in some people for this. They have some oh. guests on this that I so they appreciate. Brought- they brought Chris, Chris Novoselic from Nirvana back. Yes. I think it's just what that one track, but you don't realize how how much oh, a bass sound and tone affects a song it until you hear one of the most recognizable bass sounds you're absolutely right it adds so much to the that that big foo fighters guitar sound that dave is always trying to get chris's bass Mm-hmm. adds to that bob mold is on this too from husker do i was listening to wasting light again and i heard this other voice that was this dave bowie kind of and then i looked it up and yeah it's fucking bob mold uh rosemary is the name of the song rosemary so, right yeah we're talking yeah, about if rosemary you li- if you listen to rosemary all of a sudden you'll hear this random deep beautiful voice singing this is no ordinary life i think bob actually got to write on that song i think i think dave actually left parts of this unwritten knowing that bob was going to come in and record vocals it's amazing yeah another really brilliant track one jesus christ i really want to change my answer now (laughs) (laughs) the chord progressions the build-ups in this album the way it was made i mean what do you have anything else to say on this album arlandria's for me, that is the culmination of this. I don't. I don't know why. It's one that I go back to. That's the one that I listen to this whole album. And if I'm gonna go back and listen to an extra track before I move on to the next one, um, I play that one. Dave Grohl in an interview said that this is the defining Foo Fighters album. It's not the best in his opinion, but it's his defining. He compared it to. ACDC's Back in Black or Metallica's Black album. Okay. He just thinks it's the Foo Fighters' This Is Us album. That goes into Sonic Highways, which was also produced by Vig. Oh, this yes. is an interesting album. It's an interesting album because it really is kind of more of a documentary than an album. This is the one they did in every they, to, they did every song. They went to it. Chicago, yeah. Washington, DC, Nashville, Austin, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Seattle, and New York. And they basically wrote a song there with local musicians and playing live there for a while and just trying to get a feel for it. So it's kind of this, would you call it a concept album? It's a massive collaboration. Massive collaboration is a yeah. better way to put it. This one's tough uh-huh. to analyze because there's so many other people who I hold in pretty high esteem. They're a part of it that I feel like it's not a pure Foo Fighters album. So ju- I mean, Jesus Christ, J- Zach Brown is on this, right? Yeah. No, you're right, though. It was like a documentary. They made a movie about... Oh, I haven't seen it. I'm not a big music documentary guy. I never have been. I don't know. So... Yeah. And this one was like a docu-series. This album feels like it's not just a Foo Fighters album to me. I would agree. This might be around the same time that Dave bought or somehow bargained for, got 
the console out of Sound City, LA. Oh. The, the studio, Sound City. Really? I thought this was around the time. Maybe it was right after this album when they closed down Sound City. And he somehow got his hands on that legendary console. Yeah. I think he had to take out a wall in his house for them to be able to move it down into his house. Okay, somebody listening, if you know better, freaking go to our website, hit the contact us, and let me know I'm right or wrong, please. I'm not going to go freaking look it up right now, <laughs> but... So, Concrete Gold was recorded in 2017. For this one, Grohl chose a pop producer that had never done a rock album. Oh, yeah, I don't know his name. To try to figure out a different sound. It was like, the guy did Adele, and like... Yeah. You can definitely hear it in the mix. Greg Kirsten. Greg Kirsten. There we go. Mm -hmm. The shit, it's compressed to hell. It's smashed. And you can totally tell. I love the beginning of this album, T-shirt into run. It's almost like a, it's like a, it's funny. I'm super proud of myself for this. I was listening to this album and a song came on and I was like, why the fuck is this so Beatles? Uh, Paul? So Paul McCartney? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Happy Ever After is Paul McCartney. And you should know if you listen to yeah. it. It's the drum. Yeah. It's just very Beatlesy, And I, I like that. Uh, it, this is another love-hate thing. Another song that I love hate that i love um sky is the neighborhood which is probably the the one that's overplayed or got overplayed oh, i never when it first came out i feel like i don't listen to the radio ever it was everywhere the cool thing that they did with this they got all these fans to do covers and sing i'm still trying to figure out what the song is actually about when i first listened to this song i thought it was a big deep look into religion about how the sky is this big complex place where everybody's arguing about which religion is right and right. everybody's fighting over this and that and who's going to get into heaven and and blah 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 and in the end nope he was just looking up at the stars one night and and wrote this song see i feel like that's so dave Grohl. <laughs> yeah dave Grohl lyrics right there yeah i could say a lot of things about a lot of different tracks on this album the tricky beat of lottie da mm -hmm. the queens of the stone age sounding thing that they have going on there yeah without going too far into it do you have anything else on this album is it weird there's only three sides to this record for real the second vinyl is one-sided there's Concrete and Gold. That's the last album that came out with before Medicine and Midnight, and we're not going over that tonight. That's our breakdown of all their albums. So everybody at home, guess which album, based on what we said, is our favorites. Because we're about to go on break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to break it down. We're going to go least favorite album to most favorite album, and then we're going to give you guys our five favorite Foo Fighters songs. And that's right. I'm a little bit drunk on Coors Light and Jägermeister, <laughs> and I still said five favorite Foo Fighters songs. We will be right back. Cheers. So now we're going to do a little bit of awards and categories, and we're going to go into favorite to least albums and best songs. So I'm going to spring this one on you. Are there any songs over the last week and a half or whatever that really, really st stuck in your head? Yes. Pretender. Mm. That's actually become, I don't have a huge commute. I work in my basement, <laughs> <laughs> but I do have to drop off a couple mini-me's at preschool and... 
I could not be prouder of my boys because they request that song. That's great. The Pretender is like the number one requested Foo Fighter song in in my vehicle anyway. We just talked about it. The sky is a neighborhood. And in your honor. Uh how good is the band name? Foo Fighters? That's a that's a yeah. great band name. Album covers do you have a favorite album cover of theirs? Wasting Light, I think, probably because of how colorful it is. And then Medicine and Midnight. I really, really like Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Great, whatever it is. I love that album cover. The tube amplifier built into a bomb. How timeless is the band? I talked to someone today who was not around when Foo Fight, like the first one came out, right? She was born in 96, so she just barely missed it, right? Okay. But... She had a lot to say about Foo Fighters. This is kind of really? funny. She's a guitar player. I thought it was pretty cool. They're not going to be held to the same light as a Mastodon or a, a Mars Volta. I think it's it's yet to be determined. Yeah. So now comes, we are going to rank the albums. Sven and David, the musical appreciators. <laughs> we are going to rank the Foo Fighter albums from least bestest to most bestest. Fend, what is your least favorite Foo Fighters album of all time? Echo, Silence, Patience, and Grace. All right, I'm going Sonic Highways. God, that's a good choice. Sven, what is your second to least favorite? Your most least favorite is my second. So Sonic okay. Highways, I'm putting right there. Mine is There Is Nothing Left to Lose. That was their three-piece one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was when there was just three of them in Dave's basement. Svenji, what's Ugh. number three? You're just. You, I feel like I'm just like one album behind you so far on all of these. That's <laughs> nice. what I'm gonna put next, and I right. I actually do. I like a lot about it. I love the feeling of that album more than I love the actual end product. I'm gonna go with the demo tape. That is my third right. to least favorite album. All right, what uh, what is your fourth least favorite? Um, so I think Concrete and Gold. Okay, I think just I, I, there's really no reason other than I, I like all the other what's left more. Yeah, my fourth least favorite album, and this is where we might start to see the seas part a little bit. My fourth least favorite album is The Color and the Shape. Wow. I was never all that impressed with this album. Yeah. I don't obsess over it the way that most people do. All right. So five best <laughs> Foo Fighters albums. Sven, what is your fifth favorite Foo Fighters album? I think that Foo Fighters, the demo, that's five. That That's, that's in my top five, but it is... My fifth favorite i am surprised that one by one has made it this far up both of ours because typically when you get to an obsessed foo fighters fan i feel like one by one is one of those one-offs that people are like it actually has some staying power i'm a big fan all right so what's four for you is in your honor honestly the only thing that makes this the fourth best album for me is that acoustic mine uh would be in your honor only because i don't I I don't like that they split acoustic from... I don't know. All right, so we are now on to our top three. Neither of us have picked the favorite (laughs) of the others. Sven, what is your third favorite Foo Fighters album? Okay, third favorite might be one by one. Yeah, one by one. What about you? My third is Echo, Silence, Patience, and Grace. 
I just love them combining the acoustic. I just really love it. I love it. So, Sven, we are two, top two. our top two albums each. We both we both could have the same favorite album. I, I kind of think we might. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So, Sven, what is your second Foo Fighters album, and why is it the color and the shape? <laughs> hey, you nailed that on the head. Um, the color and the shape was a huge runner up just because it felt like the first time I felt like what the Foo Fighters were going to sound like. I know it was still yep. Dave. So my second favorite Foo Fighters album is Concrete and Gold. I love the opening song t-shirt. I love the song Run. I love. Uh, there's so much I love about this album, but... I'm too excited. I want to celebrate the fact that yeah. Sven and I both love... <laughs> right there. It's on your wall. You see this album? It's one of my favorite rock albums of the last 10 years. It was a perfect storm. The right people involved. The right songwriting. I still go back to it to this day. Ditto. I feel like I'm about to turn this into... like I, I just want to scream, Butch! Yes. Yes. So much respect. So we're amazing people. And now you have the proof. <laughs> we're we're leaving a huge question on the table, though. What, right, right. That? We both doubled down on wasting light. Yeah. But everyone needs to come back next week and find out if medicine at midnight can upset yes. the reigning champ. Are are we gonna be convinced? Yes. All right. So we've got one more thing to do, and that is name your top five Foo Fighters songs. So let's start. Oh, this is the hardest thing ever, dude. It really is. And I, I <laughs> totally know it. So let's go. Let's start at five. My fifth favorite song. It's a lot of a nostalgia thing for me. One of these days. Yes. Wasting Light. Yeah. Your pick is in my top five, but it's not my fifth. Um, my fifth is actually Pretender. Great song. Yeah. Number four is T-Shirt, which is the very first song. Huh. It's like a minute long, and it runs the gamut of every badass. It's it's like a ballad. It's got harmonization. It's everything. Yeah, yeah. Sven, what's your fourth favorite Foo Fighters song? Number four is Enough Space. Yep, the bounce song. All right, third favorite Foo Fighters song, Sven. These days. All the reasons you picked it back at, what, did you pick that as number four for you? Number five for um, me. Five for you? Um, so yeah, These Days. Uh, yours is These Days, mine is Monkey Wrench. That song means a lot to me. Uh, Sven, yeah. what is your second favorite Foo Fighters song? All My Life. Have you been searching for something? I've been searching for something. Do you want to hear something crazy? Huh? That's my second favorite Foo Fighters song, too. (laughs) What? You and I, man. We just know good music. That's all there is to it. So I'm going to go first. All right. My first favorite song. It's off of One by One, and it's the song Lonely As You. We talked about it earlier. Like I didn't see that one coming, but it makes sense. Uh, Yeah. What's yours, Sven? One last thing before I quit. I never wanted any more than I could Monkey Ridge! Yeah! I love it. I fell in love with it way back then, and it, yeah. Yep. That's really it for the Foo Fighters. Come back for next week. There's no teaser here. We're both really excited. 
we're both gonna review the new Foo Fighters and that's it. I'm soaked because we've never both reviewed the same freaking album. Exactly. Right? Everybody have a good night. Yeah, yeah. So everyone needs to follow, right? Follow, follow us. Follow us. Go to versecourseverse.com. Come hang out. Join in the conversation. Write, yeah. write to us. Tell us why we're wrong. Instagram. Tell us why we're idiots. Because David loves being on Instagram now. Make Sven go on the Twitter. <laughs> Sven, it's been amazing. Tremendous. That's it. Thank you so yeah. much. Your side.